This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. This is the Fedora Chronicles radio show, simulcast of the Diesel Punk podcast, our Christmas special for 2017. This time on the show, John Pike and I are joined by Larry Emmett and Daisy O'Dare to discuss diesel punk holiday movies and how some Christmas traditions we enjoy have their origins in the jazz era. We also get into it about The Last Jedi being the most diesel punk movie in the franchise by design, and we'll end the show with a letter from a fan. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Hey there, guys and gals, all you hat cats, cool kittens, you diesel-powered disciples of cool. This is the Diesel Punk Podcast, the voice of Diesel Punk, and this is the Diesel Punk in Pop Culture Roundtable. And I am your host, the artist also known as Big Daddy Cool. You can call me Johnny. And joining me once again via the magic of the interwebs from the Dallas-Fort Worth compound, from the boardroom, the professor, Larry Amyet. Hey, everybody. Great to be here. Great to have you here, Larry. I've missed you lately. Oh, thanks, man. Missed you, too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, that daring, darling damsel of the skies, the legendary Daisy O'Dare. Legendary? Why, Johnny, what have you heard about me? <laughs> oh, I've heard plenty. Well, I'll deny it all right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're not a sweet, generous, loving, and kind person? Well, you know, you've met me, Johnny. What do you think? (laughs) That was a trick question. (laughs) I got your Christmas card today. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, darling. People don't send Christmas cards as much anymore. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Also joining us is uh, our partner in crime, the fourth member of this fantastic assemblage. He is Eric Renderking Fisk, the host and founder of the Fedora Chronicles. You're a mean one, Mr. Diesel punk. I'm sorry. I tried. I, I, I'm sorry. It was awful. I'm sorry. I get, let me let me take let me do that over again. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But you know what? I'm, I will just say this. Don't you? Isn't it like times like these that you miss Boris Karloff's beautiful voice? Well, you know, here the magic of technology is that you can pop in your DVD or your Blu-ray of How the Grinch Stole Christmas or any of the you know the Universal monster movies and relive his his splendor all over again. That is true. That is true. But anyway, I'm going to echo what uh, what Johnny said. Um, uh, yeah, Daisy and Larry, uh, we, we definitely miss you um, on the other weeks when we're doing this with this show without you. We, we do miss you. Well, I miss you guys, too. I've just uh, I've been uh, moving to some new digs and uh, getting settled in and things are a little bit uh, up in the air right now. I mean, when aren't they up in the air with me? But I have missed <laughs> hanging out with you guys. Well, Daisy, I certainly uh, can uh, relate. I I just moved myself, um, a two-story house into a uh, three-bedroom apartment while our next house is being built. And uh, I'm in the bedroom right now, and I've locked my wife out. Oh boy! Because I don't have I don't have an office or a studio right now. So. Uh, 
that's a that's a lot of fun. Maybe that explains a lot. That maybe that explains the quality that is sort of fluctuating. Well, probably, probably. Eventually, that will be resolved um, when I get a new studio space, permanent space. But uh, as it is right now, I'm I'm mobile. So this is our Christmas Diesel Punk and Pop Culture Roundtable. There's a lot. There's a lot of uh, Christmas history from the diesel era, and uh, Larry, we've talked about this in the past. And a lot of a lot of imagery that we associate with contemporary Christmas is born of the diesel era. In particular, our uh, our contemporary version or vision or understanding of the character of Santa Claus. Oh, absolutely right. Uh, uh, it's thanks to the Saturday Evening Post uh, Coca Cola. Ads. That's right. 1931 is uh, when, uh, well, he's been featured in, in Coca-Cola ads since the 1920s, yeah. but it was, uh, yeah, it was the, the uh, in 1930, artist Fred Minson painted a department store Santa in a crowd drinking a bottle of Coke. Mm-hmm. And um, that, uh, it was, it appeared in the Saturday Evening Post in December 1930. And uh, that pretty much set the stage for, uh, for the modern contemporary image of of santa claus before then you know people were you know different depictions santa was depicted as everything from a tall gaunt man to a spooking looking elf he you know he had donned a bishop's robe and a norse huntsman animal skin because you know the tradition of santa claus saint nicholas Sinterklaas comes from a lot of nordic celtic turkish middle eastern traditions all mashed up, but it was uh, Fred Minson and uh, Coca-Cola 1930s Saturday Evening Post that really cemented the uh, the image that we have of Santa today. Exactly. Well, I have a quick question. Sure. The thing is, is that if it was pretty much the Coca-Cola ads, how does Pepsi deal with the copyright issues of, of having issue uh, images of Santa Claus? I don't well, think it's, I don't think it's it. It wasn't anything that they could copyright. He yeah, just kind of set. He just kind of set the standard. Okay. For the look, Santa himself isn't a copyrighted character. No, but I think that I mean, if you if you their version of Santa, could you copyright your own version of Santa Claus? Well, uh, I, probably. You know, that's hard to say because the uh, the outfit, the the red and white fur, was specifically chosen to remind people of the coca-cola brand exactly because coca-cola's branding colors are red and white specific and, specific and shades of red yeah so that's a good question eric i i don't know the answer to that mm. and as content creators we should know the answer to that <laughs> yeah that's because that, i mean as a graphic designer and as a as a as a web host that's one of the first things i thought about was what i, I mean let's not get sidetracked here but what if i created my own version of santa claus if i just took a picture of of you, John, and I put put you in a red outfit with a with a with a white beard and, and, a, and a and a red fedora with a with a with a white gross grain band around it. Could I copyright that with your permission, of course? I think it had to be something. I think it had to be so distinctive that it would be it, you know, that I think that would be the key for getting it past the copyright. Something extremely distinctive. Um, for yeah, example, like the way, okay. huh? go ahead. Like the way Santa Claus is depicted in uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That image of Santa, that particular image of Santa, is going to be copyrighted to Rankin Bass. But Santa Claus himself, that's that's kind of iffy. Because now everybody is searching for images of Pepsi Santa Claus. <laughs> 
Well, that is that's interesting, uh, Daisy, because the Rankin Bass uh, animated movies are based off of that design from Fred Minson. You're right. Everything, all of our modern images of Santa go back to that design. That's right. So I, I'm just as stumped as any of you fellas. Well, could Tim Burton uh, trademark uh, Jack Skellington well, as Santa Claus? As Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. So, hmm. with, so with the whole Santa Claus get up, I mean, when he puts on the Santa Claus, is that a distinctively uh, trademarked or copyrighted look as opposed to just Jack Skellington per se? Well, the character well, in yes. the Santa suit is a copyrighted character still. That's true. That's if, right. If you put a Santa suit on Bugs Bunny, it's still copyrighted because it's Bugs Bunny in the Santa suit. That's, That's a good and, point. And you could not create your own merchandise or your own work using that specific character design, yeah. even though it's based off of you know a pop culture design. I suspect Santa Claus per se, which I think is safe to say is public domain, uh, absolutely cannot be trademarked, and therefore you can have a variety of derivative um, that, in and of itself, is not trademarked. But if it's distinctive, like Jack's skeleton, that can be trademarked. Does that? Did I make sense in all that? You did. Yeah, yeah. you actually did. Issue like the story of Cinderella is not copyrighted, but Disney's Cinderella is copyrighted. Oh, good one. That's right. Okay. That's right. And and I'm sure. Sure, there's some kind of entertainment copyright legal scholar listening who can uh, shoot us a message or an email and set us all straight because uh, I have no idea. Wait, thanks for taking us down a rabbit hole there, Eric. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. And by the way, Alice in the Wonderland is copyrighted by what? Lewis Carroll? But Disney's Alice in Wonderland is not, which I think is kind of unusual. But anyway, you know, that's what happens when you're a graphic designer and you make your own content. That's, that's the first place my mind goes and stuff like that so well what's interesting about you know santa claus is you know that image was introduced into the uh, popular culture in 1930 by 1942 just 12 years later it was the standard accepted version of santa pretty much worldwide and you know what else was introduced in 1942 relating to santa claus sprite boy that's right (laughs) (laughs) coke introduced sprite boy as a as a uh, as a colleague of uh, as like mm, funny you don't see Spike Boy popping up anywhere anymore, do, do no, you? No, you know what? Until until I was researching for this episode, I had never even heard of Sprite Boy because it wasn't even until the 1960s that Coca Cola introduced the drink Sprite. Yeah, That's which odd. is yeah fascinating in and of itself. I wonder if the war caused a problem in the sense that it probably uh, some of the uh, um, some of the products that they would have needed uh, made it unavailable and then they just shelved it and then they decided to bring it back bring it and make it a thing and well, well, do you know the story of Fanta Larry? Yep. Uh, you want to go ahead and tell everybody the story Daisy because I think that's a good tie in well before you go right. in, well, uh, oh. go ahead Daisy and I'll, I'll interject oh, with this go ahead Right was first developed in West Germany as a flavor of Fanta and was introduced in the 19th in 1961 to the United States as a competitor to 7-Up so it ties in with the Fanta story that you were referring to, Larry. Well, well, refresh our, our fans on the on the brand Fanta, how it came about, because it's all tied to World War II and Nazi Germany. Right. Well, Coca-Cola, they had business in Germany, but they couldn't get the materials they needed, the ingredients they needed to make Coca-Cola in Nazi Germany because, you know, there were blockades, there were embargoes, they were our enemy. We weren't going to give them the goods that they needed. So they just made a soft drink out of whatever 
whatever they could find around. And that's how we got Fanta. Well, yeah. I mean, Coca-Cola didn't want to be seen uh, doing business with, you know, lousy Nazis. Oh, no. They, no. They were, but, but they weren't, they didn't have enough, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? They didn't have enough uh, integrity to not do business with them. They just didn't want people to know that they were doing business with them. So they created the Fanta brand. It's yep, kind now, of a, now, my understanding is a little less negative, what I read. Um, okay, so Coca-Cola had its affiliate in Germany, like it did in several European countries, right? Uh, and they were working together still. I mean, all the way up to the war, uh, all the way up to the Americans' entry into the war. When America entered the war, that's when Coca-Cola had to, like you said, they couldn't be associated with it, and they cut ties. Well, the Coca-Cola franchise in Germany didn't want to die. They weren't necessarily Nazis. They just didn't want to die. So they, in an attempt to survive, did what Daisy said and took what they could with their limited resources. I don't know if it was really a marketing that Coke didn't want to be associated necessarily with them. Yeah. It's just it was just a practical thing, uh, According more or less, just when the war happens. Well, I understand now, uh, now a version of this that I have heard is that, and why is my microphone? You, can, you guys can hear me, okay, right? Yeah, loud absolutely. And clear. Okay, yeah. so the thing is, is that the version of this that I that I read was that um, when Coca Cola Germany and other Coca Cola factories were shut off from the rest of the world, um, they weren't Nazis necessarily. <laughs> like Larry just said, all they wanted to do just merely survive, and the remaining Coca Cola employees who were stuck in behind behind enemy lines were making product based on whatever it is that they could find and that's how how Fanta was created from all of my knowledge of reading this Fanta was not created by the Coca-Cola company in the United States to to appease or or do business with the Nazis it was quite the opposite it was just a matter of mm. mere survival no. so mm-hmm. it's and then well, it, they got used to drinking Fanta and after the war they wanted to keep it and so Fanta became a thing and out of well, uh, go ahead John Fanta is owned by the Coca-Cola company today. It so, is. Oh yeah. And the right, thing you know. and the thing is 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 that after the war, Coca-Cola in Germany and Coca-Cola in the rest of the world you know re- reunited, um mm-hmm. got back together and um and after a couple of years after the war to help expand markets, they they brought Fanta back. And by the way, I mean when I'm working at the local hardware and feed store, that's my favorite thing for a break. I don't know what it is. Sometimes there's a thirst that only a Fanta can cure. Now, that's not an endorsement by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's my favorite orange soda, and that's it. That's Well, you know, the Fanta pineapple soda yeah. is pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wait a minute. You, yeah, mean, you yeah. mean in other parts of the United States, Fanta comes in other flavors besides orange? Oh, yeah. Really? We've got, we've got in, in Nashville, we've got Fanta grape, Fanta strawberry. There's a Fanta peach. Yeah, pineapple. That's funny. I've only I've only ever seen orange. Oh, let I, me tell I, you. Uh, oh, sorry. I let even think you, there's a raspberry. There might be, but um, let me tell you, uh, I spent some time in Japan. Japan loves Fanta, and they have all kinds of seasonal flavors and, uh, you know, flavors that you could only get over there. And the big popular one over there is just a melon flavor. It's this green melon soda that's actually really good. Well, you know what I'm going to have to do, uh, Eric? I, th- I think I'm going to have to put together a, uh, a Christmas Fanta package for you. That would be <laughs> awesome. Now, the only question I have is what products do we have in New England that you'd love to have that but you can't get in Nashville? Maple syrup. Okay. I, I, will, I will send you some maple syrup. <laughs> 
<laughs> but hey, you, it's got to be authentic. You got to go like out to the tree and tap, tap the tree. Oh, okay. You, you you mean like just like every other weekend? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody in New England knows how to do that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that we we just we just take the ski gondolas to our forest, tap the trees ourselves, <laughs> and then and then we and then we ski back. Absolutely. Well, you know what, Eric? We need to add that to the list of skills every man needs to know. You know how what? to tap a tree to make maple syrup. Oh my God, you just reminded me. Now, wait a minute. Larry and David, did you hear our last show? Larry and who now? Who? Uh, Larry and David. What the hell's wrong with me, Seinfeld fans? <laughs> Curb your enthusiasm. Uh, uh, Larry and Daisy. Larry David, that's hysterical. Larry and Daisy, did you hear our last show? I haven't had the chance to listen to the last show, but uh, it sounds like you were cooking up a list. Uh, well, the thing is, is that we were actually talking, well, we were talking about you in, in specifically, because John and I were talking about what skills should every man know before he can call himself a man. And John came up with the idea of, well, what about Daisy? What does Daisy think that every diesel punk woman should know before she's allowed to call herself a diesel punk woman? And we were going to bring that up in a future show. And I, we forgot. We forgot to put it on the agenda. All right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll kick that around in my brain for a bit and see what I come up with. Very cool. Larry, my, my big thing was I, I think every man needs to learn, every boy needs to learn how to tie a tie, a proper tie. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, if By the time, if you can grow hair on your upper lip, you should not be using a clip on. Oh, I love that. That's a great line. That's a great quote. Oh, thank you. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, before we move off of uh, some of the diesel era history of Christmas, anything else that uh, we associate with Christmas, Larry, that you're aware of that was uh, kind of some minted in the diesel era oh in the way of that i mean i can think of a variety of uh, movie productions but um the macy day parade oh, oh yeah. yeah yeah it started in the uh it started in the 30s as the by the employees who to promote the macy's store and um and of course a lot of people consider to start a kickoff of uh, christmas is when santa follows at the end of the parade yeah that's that's a great one great one eric can you think of any others uh, the concept of the christmas movie christmas holiday mm. specials m- movies uh, holiday in movies created specifically for the christmas season has its origins in ah, 1920s yeah. and 30s hollywood um and and the thing is is that one of the things people don't seem to realize is that uh, the the quintessential uh christmas movie it's a wonderful life when it was mm. first released i think everybody should know by now it was not an initial hit it, if it wasn't for um the rights of it's a wonderful life um lapsing and and people being able to play it wherever they want whenever they want on 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 cable that's what made it the cult classic it is today and if anything watching it's a wonderful life in this day and age is a christmas time diesel punk activity absolutely that's one of my favorite uh, Christmas movies, uh, which I, you know, maybe hopefully we'll talk about here in a little while. Our favorite movies. Uh, that's on my list. Well, that's a great. That is a great segue, Larry. So we can do that. Um, you know, and, and and before we get into our favorites per se, um, did anyone? I, I think I asked this before we went on the air. Uh, you know, a great diesel punk Chris Christmas movie that we talk about all the time is A Christmas Story, mm-hmm. and uh, CBS aired the Christmas Story live from. 
Broadway this uh, this week, and uh, <sighs> I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I, I just couldn't. I, I the, the the story is something that I love and cherish so much, and the casting of Matthew Broderick as the father just did not work for me, and so I couldn't do it. You know that that really strikes me as odd that he's cast. I mean, for that, I mean, he was really good. I thought in the producers, the musical. Uh, I thought he was perfect for that role. I just can't imagine him as the father in a Christmas story. Yeah, neither can I. But I'm sure someone listening did watch it and uh, will will tell us how wrong we are. That seems to be the trend on uh, on social media right, <laughs> no. right now. <laughs> No matter what your opinion, someone is going to jump on and tell you just how wrong you really are. But don't get me started on that. No, let's get started. uh, They're saying it did not get a... uh, I'm looking at a site called Adweek, one of those uh, industry websites, um, saying that just 4.48 million viewers saw A Christmas Story Live, the smallest audience of any broadcast show that night. That that just does not surprise me. No. Because I think... I think most people are, are feeling the way I am. Here you have, in my opinion, a perfect movie. And and not just a perfect holiday movie. I think it is a perfect movie um, from beginning to end. And the need to turn that into, one, a live stage production is a little bit questionable. But then the further need to broadcast that in a new format, I, there's been a lot of pushback on, on the broadcasts of some of these live musicals because people feel like they're you know remaking the movies mm-hmm. and they're not and that's not the case here they're not remaking the movie they're just broadcasting the live production of the Broadway musical it but, just so happens that so many musicals now are based on movies that came out within the last 20, 30 years or so. I don't understand. Every movie well, is a musical now. Mm-hmm. Well, no. Actually, the ones that have been on television so far, like um, Sound and Music and Grease and The Wiz and um, uh, there was uh, another one. Uh, last Peter year was Hairspray. Was Hairspray, yeah. yeah. Those yeah. were all Broadway musicals before they were movies. Mm-hmm. Um, the movies were based based on the, the stage production. This is the yeah, opposite was case a movie here. First. Well, Newsies. Hairspray was a movie first. No, it well, was... It, yes. Was it? Not was it? the musical version. Oh, okay. The, the musical version was on oh, stage wow. first, and then they made a movie of the musical, and then they did the live production on TV. Uh, Hairspray is a little bit convoluted, but, um, you know, yeah, Larry, Newsies started it as a movie musical. That's one of the right. few ones. Right. Um, and it was a, a dismal failure at the box. In fact... I think many of the stars, I've heard how they don't even include it in their uh, resumes. Um, well, but on Broadway, it was a smash but hit. But it was, yeah, and then it turned around to be a smash hit. I agree. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, Christmas Story is uh, my favorite diesel punk movie. And, and we consider it diesel punk. Larry, you made this point a few years ago that because of, you know, the, uh, the fantasy and the... Uh, the uh, you know the the imaginary sequences and and mm-hmm. kind of the celebration of uh, you know bucking the system you know little Ralphie having to buck authority to, to get what he wants <laughs> um, you know he he kind of becomes the antihero right um, yeah just about I hadn't thought of him that way but he does. I mean, the dad, I mean, you know, with his, uh, the way they edit the language, but you know what the dad is saying, you know, the, yeah. uh, the, the uh, the bullying, uh, the electric leg, um, 
<laughs> all kind of brings it into our, con- our modern understanding. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think it's definitely diesel punk, and it's my favorite one. Uh, for the Christmas season, but Diesel era movies for Christmas, A White Christmas. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hands down, I'll watch that any day of the week. Well, I already mentioned that A Wonderful Life is my favorite. Uh, the second favorite for me is Christmas Carol, the 1938, Reginald Owen and Gene Lockhart. Okay, yeah. Daisy, what about you? Uh, well, let's see. Um, to be honest, I don't watch, the, the only time I watch Christmas movies is like just about if we are right at Christmas and I happen to be at someone's house and it's playing. I don't I don't think about watching Christmas movies that often. I don't know. Sometimes I think I have a grinchy streak, but I keep it in check, so I'm okay. <laughs> I don't need an intervention. <laughs> but, That's uh, funny. But It's a Wonderful Life is a pretty solid tradition in our household, and I will be seeing that on Christmas Eve. So uh, I have to say, I uh, you know, I go through phases about it, but I think it's a it's it's a good movie. You know, it, it wasn't, it, I don't think it was the right movie for the time because everybody kind of dismissed it as being as being overly sentimental but sometimes a little sentimentality it's good for you you know yeah you're right they did kind of think of it as saccharine that's a very good point which is kind of interesting because if you really watch it it's not it's pretty edgy yeah heavy uh social commentary and um so yeah but you're right that really was the opinion and that's the opinion that most people have of it but no there's a there's a lot of edge and commentary in that movie now i do want to say have you seen the saturday night live skit of the uh the lost ending oh you stole my thunder oh my god i was gonna bring that up and you ruined it Now I've got to Google that. I've got to see that. I've not seen it either, I'm Larry. not going to spoil anything, but... Uh, well, I will say... who's made to see that movie a lot, it really made me giggle. I will say that... Uh, and it was one of those episodes where William Shatner was hosting Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and William Shatner says, For the first time ever seen on live network television, in the history of television, we have the lost ending of Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Watch it now. And it is... Now, Dana Carvey does the gr- one of the greatest, the second greatest imitations Jimmy of Jimmy Stewart. Not, not, well, Dana not, Carvey does a lot of great impressions. I'm, I've always liked him. And, and the thing is, is that well, he, he does the second best imitation of, uh, of of Jimmy Stewart. And the thing is, is that it's hysterical because the thing is, is that one of one of um, George Bailey's neighbors from the, who works at the bank says, George, George, you're, you're not going to believe this. I, Mr. Potter just made a, a deposit, uh, the same exact money that that that, that Uncle, Uncle Charlie has. And then, and then, um, and then Dana Carvey says, well, "Well, let's go see that scoundrel." And it's like it turns out that the entire time you have to see it for yourself. Potter has been faking the whole thing about being a cripple the entire time. And it, it, you, I don't want to spoil it. You do have to watch the ending, and it is it, it's the exact opposite of how you would expect a Frank Frank Capra movie to end. I think that for the show notes for the Fedora Chronicles version of this um, broadcast, I'm actually going to put a link to it on the show page. 
that that would be great and so wonderful life besides being you know a diesel era classic actually has a stronger tie to quintessential diesel punk than a lot of people might think is does anyone know where i'm going with this go for is it. it because of the somewhat fantasy element or is it because of the war element no uh, where are we going no <clears throat> The quintessential diesel punk movie, the the movie that you hand people and say, this is diesel punk, is what? Sky Captain. Sky Captain. Well, Sky Captain's directorial style was intentionally mimic, mimicking Frank Capra's directorial style in A Wonderful Life. Ah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It was intentionally made to look like a Frank Capra movie. So there you go. That. Wow. It all ties together. It does. It's like some giant spider web. <laughs> so, um, I, there, but there is, believe it or not, in my heart, there is um, an even better Frank Capra Christmas movie. And it's one that hardly anybody has seen until tonight. Because when I tell you about this, when I tell you about this movie, um, people are going to just go out and see it because of, 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 the, um, of, of the final monologue. And it's one of those movies where, I mean... I, I every I've seen it a dozen times. I still fall to pieces when I see it again. Um, it's a it's a Frank Capra movie called um, Meet John Doe, and it's it actually uh, ends at Christmas. And it's it's about it's it stars Barbara Stanwyck as a newspaper reporter who makes up a character John Doe who says that if the world doesn't straighten out, he's going to jump off the tower. He's going to jump off the, the the tower in the city if the, if everybody doesn't straighten out. Well, the thing is, is that the newspaper editor um played by james gleason i'm not sure if he's related to jackie gleason says well you gotta find yourself a john doe once he finds out it's fake and it's this it's it's about how one person gets swept up into a a movement and um it also stars um gary cooper in one of the greatest roles of of his life and and this movie was released in 1941 just before the beginning of world in the just before the beginning of world war one and it is what probably one of the one of those movies that makes you look at how a good man can be recruited into a political movement that can become uh, perverted, and you could see how the rise of fascism could occur in the United States because of the good intentions of just a couple of people who wanted to create this this idea of a better world. And for me, it's it's like the, when Barbara Stanwyck gives her her closing monologue of the movie. It, I, I, it, I, I, it still it still gives me tingles and it's like I was gonna read it but I'm not you know I, I don't know if you guys are up for it because I'm, I'm afraid I'm afraid of how you guys are gonna react to it well well now you have to I know I'm, I'm all ears so at the at the end of the movie Anne who's played by Barbara Stanwyck is pleading with John not to commit suicide and he's he's literally gonna jump Gary can, Cooper convinces you that you're gonna jump and at the top of the tower like there's all the bad guys all the fascists and and up against um, Gary Cooper's character who's been behind him the whole time and Barbara Stanwyck says please don't give up we'll start over again just you and I it's not too late the John Doe movement isn't dead yet you see John it isn't dead or they wouldn't be here it's alive and it's alive in them they keep it alive by not being afraid that that's why they come up here don't you understand we'll start clean just you and me and it'll grow John and it'll become big because it's honest this time John, it's it's worth dying for. It's also worth living for. Please, John. 
you want to be honest, don't you? Well, you don't have to go and die to keep the John Doe movement alive. Somebody already did that. Somebody already died for that once. The first John John Doe. And, and he kept the idea alive for nearly 2,000 years. It was he who kept it alive in them. And he'll go on keeping it alive. And it'll go on forever. And for every John, John Doe movement, these men kill, another one will be born. That's why the bells are ringing, John. They're calling to us not to give up, but to keep on fighting, to keep on preaching. Don't you see? Don't you see? This is not the time to give up. You and me and all the other John John Doe's out there, please, if you die, then I want to die too. And it was like, that's like, that's like, that's writing. Yeah, wow. Pretty cool. And he knew how to write a script. Frank Capra and his team knew how to write a script. You bet. That's it. Wow. I don't have anything to add to that. Well, I think it stands pretty well on its own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you thanks bet. for sharing that, Eric. You know, as we were talking about Christmas traditions born of the uh, diesel era, I, I did think of one other one. And Larry, we, we've talked about this before, and it, it is a it is a television tradition for the for network television to air The Wizard of Oz at Christmas. Right. And and it's not a Christmas movie, but it has become associated with Christmas because of the time that it's always aired. And I, I think if I remember right, you you shared some knowledge on that why it always gets aired at. Christmas. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I, listen, listen, guys, this is this is the maybe, maybe it was maybe it was Mr. Wofford when we it, talked about it last. That, that maybe I have to go back and listen. I have to go back through the archives and dig that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, I think you're. I don't know. I remember. I remember. Refresh our memory. Okay. It's all about the spirit of giving. It's all about, because the thing is, is that the greatest gifts of all, according to everybody else that have spoken to this and why it's such a great Christmas movie, is that um, all the characters want it. It's like, the thing is, is like the, the Wizard of Oz is like Santa Claus or the idea of Santa Claus. And the thing is, is that you think that somebody else is going to give you something that's going to make you happy. Um, the Scarecrow with a brain, the Tin Man with a heart. Cowardly Lion with Courage. They all wanted something. They wanted to be given something. And when it comes right down to it, spoiler alert, Santa Claus isn't who we think he is. Um, and if there's any little kids listening, Santa Claus is not who we think he, you think he is. And I'm sorry. The greatest gift of all is when somebody tells you that you already had what you all always needed. Because the thing is, is that it was the Scarecrow who came up with that crazy scheme, How to Rescue Dorothy. Everything that the tin, that the, that the tin Man did, he did out of he did out of love and the cowardly lion this the 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 most timid afraid creature in all the movie he conquers the greatest fear of all and does something pretty amazing as you know and even though he was a coward facing all of his fears is pretty courageous mm-hmm. and the thing is is that what about dorothy Dorothy always had the ability to go home whenever she wanted because of the ruby slippers, but nobody bothered to tell her until the end. And that's 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 why the Wizard of Oz is about the spirit of giving in the end, but not gi- not the spirit of giving that you think. That's a neat thought. That's pretty profound. You know, another one is uh, Sound of Music. Now, that one has a reputation for being a Christmas movie. Yeah. Also. Well, it, it does, but that one's not born of the diesel era, so I didn't really no, bring it up. No, but I'm just saying. Yes. 
I, I'm right there with you. Well, the hills are alive, my brother. <laughs> actually, there is a diesel. It is does have a diesel era theme, though. Yeah, you think you're right. It. I mean, the, you're right. The, actually, you're right. But the story the, itself, anything is almost it's almost diesel punk. It is. I I don't understand how. Well, except that it's a true story. That's it. It's, well, yeah. So it's 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 his it's you know it's a historical musical docudrama. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you're right. It, I mean, yep. it is diesel. I mean, period. It's true, but they kind of punk it a little bit by adding the musical sequences. Yeah, you know, I guess you're right. I, I never really thought about that. Hmm. 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 You always learn something new on this show. There is also... See, I never thought of it as being diesel punk, but it kind of, it, it doesn't have the edginess that we normally think of. It's almost like but it does. Well, the, the Christmas story actually, does. The, the Von Trapp family, what what were they trying to do? They they were trying to escape the, the Nazi fascists and because Captain Von Trapp was loyal to Austria and, and he did not want to see Austria fall to the Nazis mm-hmm. and, and he stood up and they spoke out against and you know they had to flee they had to escape i mean that's that's you know the 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 punk attitude of you know rebelling against authority authoritarianism and the gif of him tearing taking the nazi flag and ripping it in half and tossing it down is uh, re-emerged on the uh, on Facebook yeah. and has mm. been yeah it's uh, it's very it, you, you see it especially after Charlottesville uh, you saw it a lot with um, of him taking the Nazi flag and ripping it in half and tossing it down um, so it's kind of become symbolic of the uh, of that we we are going to have to add sound of music to our list of diesel punk movies I think so who'd who'd have thunk mm-hmm Speaking of diesel punk movies, mm-hmm. brand new diesel punk movies that are ending our 2017 that nobody has seen yet um, <laughs> is The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro. And this thing is racking up award nomination after award no- mm-hmm. nomination. Now they're talking um, uh, Oscar nominations. We'll find out those nominations shortly. But uh, it's nominated for a record number of Golden Globe Awards. And and um, it's still in limited release. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not even hit nationwide release. It, it hit the first theaters December 1st. Then it trickled out December 8th. And then a few more on December 15th. And this weekend, it's supposed to be in all cities. But even still, it's not going to be in all theaters like Bad Mom's Christmas. Oh, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, I'm still so upset about that. But um, everyone that has seen this movie, the reviews are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people agree with, with me that um, it is a the, the aesthetics are absolutely diesel punk. It's set in the 1960s, but we talk all the time that, you know, diesel punk isn't about the year a story is set. Diesel punk is about the style and aesthetics mm-hmm. and the, the story elements of the story. And this seems to fit the bill. Now, I'll be able to to give it, you know, a, a bigger thumbs up and stamp of approval when I actually see it this Friday. I am going to see it this Friday. We've got an event planned in Asheville mm-hmm. to see it. Um, so I'm excited about that. But Larry, you were saying that you've read a review that outright called it Diesel Punk. Right. The website for Paste Magazine, pastemagazine.com, 
the uh, movie reviewer Andy Crump, he actually uses the phrase diesel punk. He says, quote, visually, the shape of water screams diesel punk, signifying wow. Bioshock more than the Brothers Grimm. Um, so, yeah, he actually uses, he drops the phrase, it screams diesel punk. Hey, send, send us a link to that review, um, if you can. Um, you know what? Sounds to me like this reviewer. What's his name? Uh, what was his name? Uh, Andy Crump. Andy Crump sounds like he might be one of us, because not only did he use the diesel punk phrase or term, he referenced another diesel punk property in referencing Bioshock. Mm-hmm. He sure did. Didn't think I didn't think about that, but you're right. I mean, he, he might actually be in tune with our community. He might be listening to this podcast right now. He might. He is He is a Boston-based pop culture critic. He's been writing about film and television online since 2009 and has contributed to Pace since 2013. He also writes words for Playlist, WBUR's The Artery, Slate Magazine, The Hollywood Reporter, Polygon, Thrillist, and Birth. And he's a oh, member wow. of the Online Critics Society and the Boston Online Film Critics Association. He's on the Twitter. <laughs> well, you know... And he says that, he's composed that's... of roughly 65% crap here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... Well, hey, he's right up there with uh, Mr. Fisk. Yeah, <laughs> we might be neighbors. So, well, that's exciting, and mm-hmm. I'm super excited to see that movie this Friday night. And guys, give me half a second. I got to put you on mute. Okay. So, this, um, this, this, hmm. this. So the thing is, is that one of the things is like I, I'm surprised is that nobody mentioned things to come yet. The H.G. Wells classic that was no? that was um, uh, uh, released in 1936, and it is an ultimate example of retro futurism. Uh, because the thing is, is that it actually is a movie um, that was made, like I said, in 1936, and it deals with. The um, post-apocalypse and the and the rise of civilization after <laughs> the Second and Third World War, um, and about what happens uh, on planet Earth in 1974. <laughs> you know? Ooh, way off in the distance. Way off into the future. And uh, when I was a kid, it scared the crap out of me. The night that it played on PBS, I was just like, "Oh my God, it's going to happen any day now, any day now." Oh no, because I was a kid in the 1970s. And I thought it was like it was I thought it was actually like a documentary. And then it's like when you're walk, walking around the neighborhood and nobody's nobody has these giant, huge helmets about like, you know, about the size of their torso walking around. There's a lot of controversy about things to come. It, uh, in many ways, a lot a lot of individuals that I've read don't consider it one of his better works. Which one? H.G. Uh, Wells? H.G. Wells. Well, th- uh, that it was not one of his better uh, works. Uh, not like Time Machine, yeah, or certainly not, you know, uh, a War of the Worlds. Um, but yeah, um, I saw the movie. I, I, I was not always uh, overly impressed by the movie. Really, um, even, even yes, it's the the visuals. Uh, that is hardcore retro futurism. What set the standards for what we think of as retro futurist look? Yeah, um, it really was their vision of in 1936 what the future would look like. Sure, I agree. I've never even heard of this film. I gotta, I gotta find it. I gotta check it out. What H.G. Wells' Things to Come? Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen it. it I've was seen ma- the Time Machine. I didn't like the Time Machine. To tell you the truth. 
truth. It was you. Well, it was also dramatically different than the novel. Um, it was dramatic. It was dramatically different. Um, so, uh, I just sent you I, a link, John. Just sent you a link. Of, all of those, you really need to go back and read the novels, both Time Machine and uh, War of the Worlds. Uh, nobody's really made a production true to either one of them. No, no. I, I and I think that there's aspects of H.G. Uh, Wells' original novel, um, War of the Worlds. I know that a lot of people have tried to do a faithful adaptation for it to the film, but there are aspects of it that I, I don't. I don't think the rest of the world would really be prepared for. And John's laughing in the background. <laughs> no, no. I, I'm I'm just listening. Why, why would we not be prepared for it? I thought Spielberg's attempt came the closest. You think so? I thought so. Okay. Yeah, I thought. I thought. I thought. Well, I was a rabid, rabid. In fact, War of the Worlds, the radio program, um, is what one of the things that turned me on to Diesel Punk as a kid, because my parents bought um, these albums of old radio shows, which I played and played and played and played and played, and one of them included the full broadcast of Orson Welles' uh, Mercury Theater, War of the Worlds. Yeah. And I, I read the novel so many times I could almost quote it and uh, but really Spielberg at least visually he captured uh, the novel um, there was a lot in there that I thought he did a very good job of capturing a lot better than the what the 1950s movie yeah I, I well, well go ahead John Eric I'm curious about that that statement though um, why why did you think I was laughing at that comment that there were things that audiences even today wouldn't be ready for oh no I thought you were laughing about something else going on in the background that oh, had nothing no, to do no, with the no, conversation no, no. <laughs> like 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 your cat no, was looking no. you know okay no I, I well i'm having dog 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 issues i guess you could say running in and out i had to that's why i had to put you on mute yeah yeah it's take like, care of the doggos yeah no i i think that um i think that there's a lot of aspects to hg wells uh work um and i know that i know that we're retreading old ground here but there, there are aspects of H.G. Wells's uh, original work that was ahead of its time, and mm-hmm. I think that a lot of his novels are, are essential reading for diesel punks. Mm-hmm. And I just, Daisy, what do you well, think? You, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Daisy. Jump in. Well, I wasn't about to say anything. Oh, well, it's it, one. You always have to remember when you're reading it. He set the standard of the idea that science fiction should be political. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, both books we're talking about. Uh, War of the Worlds and Time Machine are explicitly political, uh, especially left-wing political, uh, when you read them. Because H.G. Wells, <laughs> Wells was a socialist, and it, he worked not only what was at the time cutting-edge science uh, into his novels, but he worked politics into his novels. Uh, the aliens represented the British imperialist. The humans represented all the uh, well anybody they invaded basically and conquered. Uh, but he, but by doing so, he told the story about well, what would it be like if you got invaded and took over? Yeah, was his message to the British. Um, so he said, well, who would be more powerful than us? Well, aliens. Yeah, and you know we can't beat them. They're, so um, the um, time machine. At the end, it's interesting, one of the groups represents the descendants of capitalists, and one of the groups represents the descendant of the working class. I'm not going to say who. You can guess. Okay. You may be wrong, because it's not intuitive. It goes a very different direction with it. Yes, yes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll have to go back and give the, those a, a, another view. Um, you know, the, read really... the novels. Read the, they're, they're almost novellas by modern standards. Yeah, so you yeah. Could, you could, you yeah. can knock them off in the day. Yeah, I've got them uh, on my bookcase yeah 
You know what's really interesting about that? I was just going to say, you know, we're, we're talking about H.G. Wells' stories in a diesel punk perspective, but, you know, he was writing at the end of the Victorian era, mm-hmm. and most steampunks point to him as a steampunk author, but in truth, he was writing futuristic science fiction for the most part that wasn't really adapted or attempted to be adapted into a, into a you know, a, a pop culture medium format uh, until the diesel a- era. Yeah. They didn't really have the means to adapt it into film or radio or anything like that until the diesel era. It could have been a matter of technology. Well, that's, that's right. Good, that's a good point, Daisy. But, but isn't, it, isn't it interesting? Um, most of the H.G. Uh, Wells and, and for that matter, Jules Verne mm-hmm. uh, adaptations that we see in film, radio, television, um, whatnot, always seem to set their their story in a, a time future, future to when, when the story was written. Well, now, now, not Jules Verne. Jules Verne set his in the current era that he was writing. But I'm talking about I'm talking about the adaptations, though. Oh, well, like, I, you know, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yeah. Uh, you know, twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Uh, well, th- they that- tend to have a more contemporary styling Did they? in terms of visual and and uh, you know pop culture appearance and and whatnot. Hmm. They're they're not they're not trying to stay in a Victorian style, is what I'm trying to say. It's been a while since I've seen the movies, but I kind of remember they did. Um, it, now H.G. Wells, he straddled it. He's kind of like World War One. You could he could be steam, he could be diesel. You know, pick. Uh, uh, and in either case, he kind of straddles, um, and he, he could go either way on that. Um, Jules Verne is distinctly steampunk. In fact, he's the inspiration for steampunk. Uh, most steampunks I know and used to hang out with, they explain steampunk as, well, imagine if Jules, everything Jules Verne made up is real. That's their explanation for it. Uh, <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's how they described the steampunk universe. What if what Jules Verne described was real? Um, nuclear subs and stuff like that. Um, oh, it's an interesting thought. Now, Daisy was on to something. One reason the stuff, a lot of uh, H.G. Wells wasn't made till the 50s is they couldn't do the technology to make it. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons the um, alien craft hovered in the 1950s War of the Worlds is they couldn't make the legs, the Ooh. tripods to move. Well, they couldn't they tried, make it look realistic. And they couldn't get them, yeah. even with stop motion, they couldn't figure out how to make the tripods walk. Uh, it, it, Spielberg, it took high-tech computer technology mathematically to figure out how they could make a tripod walk like that. That was uh, only Lucasfilm Spielberg and Lucas ILM Industrial Lights of Magic could pull that off. Yeah. Well, you know what my favorite adaptation of World of the Worlds, War of the Worlds is? Our buddy Joe Pearson's War of the Worlds Goliath. That that is a oh. yeah, that is that is a great um great movie. Yeah, Larry doesn't like it. No. <laughs> No, I could, I could give you, I could, I could give you a list of why, but no, I don't. I love it. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite. Uh, it's definitely uh, at the top of my list for diesel punk animation. Uh, it but, is. Uh, it is a very diesel punk movie. Absolutely, I agree with that. I just don't like it. <laughs> oh, I was head young mute, and I was laughing, which, which is funny because Joe is so active in the diesel punk community. And um, so uh, he'll he'll definitely hear this, Larry. Well, you know that's fine. I like the, <laughs> I like the storyline. I love the representation of Tesla, of Teddy Roosevelt. I thought that was great. Um, I don't like the, the drawings of the people. That they I know, look. You, like, you didn't like the animation style. They look like. I mean, they, they don't look human. They they don't look normal. I mean, it's like well, who's 
hit these guys up with steroids because they are so muscled. I bet they couldn't clap. They're so muscled. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so so it's interesting. Joe and I actually Joe and I actually had a conversation about that one time. And you know the the animation studio that he worked with to do the the movie. Um, they drew a lot of their inspiration from the, the 1990s comic book styling, but they were heavily influenced by Mike Mignola, who did the character designs and all of the uh, the map paintings for Disney's Atlantis. Yeah. Ooh. And if you look at Disney's Atlantis and you compare the, the body styling and some of the a lot of the angular shapes in, in the physicality, you'll see a lot of compare a lot of similarities with Goliath. Hmm. And um, so yeah, uh, just uh, just as an aside. But, <laughs> <laughs> but okay so we're talking about um we're we're talking about uh war of the worlds orson mm. wells mm-hmm. um things to and, come and things to I'm come gonna, i'm gonna i'm going what's that things to come is is essentially it's a movie that starts on christmas day and ends on christmas day a hundred years into the future that's that's why it's a christmas movie i'm gonna have to check that one out i've i've not i've never seen that movie so that's that's um um putting it at the top of my list but uh you know the the seminal adaptation of war of the worlds is orson wells orson wells mm. also produced the groundbreaking both critically loved and critically panned production of julius caesar on broadway which set the story of julius caesar in a pre-world war ii nazi germany you know basically uh, setting the Roman Empire as the uh, fascist Nazi government, and so I'm I'm really I'm weaving a very intricate path here. Um, when you see the pictures of Orson Welles' set or any film footage that exists, he used a very minimalist set, very stark uh, colors, you know, red background. Uh, he uh, the character he was playing. Um, Julius Caesar, he he played the character, uh, was uh, you know dressed in stark black with, with the long uh, trench coat, just very monochromatic. And we fast forward to 2017, Ryan Johnson's Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Yeah, and here we go. Snoke's throne room looks like it was modeled directly out of Orson Welles' Julius Caesar. Wow. And yep. I've not heard anyone else make that comparison. I think I'm the only one who who has seen that but um a lot of people are are picking up more now with the last jedi the diesel punk aesthetic in this movie maybe more than any previous star wars movie Eric, you've seen it. Larry, Daisy, have you seen The Last Jedi yet? I have not. I haven't been to the movies in a while. I'm I'm just like Daisy. I haven't been in a while. All right. And I haven't seen it <clears throat> well, yet. No. Well, then let me ask you this, Larry, or, or Eric. W- without us giving away any spoilers, is The Last Jedi the most diesel punk Star Wars movie yet? Uh, I'm going to provisionally say it's the, it's the most diesel punk Star Wars movie since a new hope only because when they made a new hope to save money they recycled surplus
plus World War One, World War Two, Spanish Civil War um, stuff that they could find. Anything that they could find mm-hmm. at a surplus store, they could repurpose. Um, yes. Um, the original Star Wars movie, 1977, is the most diesel punk movie of the entire series out of sheer necessity. The Last Jedi is the most diesel punk as a stylish choice. How's that? Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I, I think that's fair. Um, and when you guys do see it, and for those of you who are listening, um, we're not going to give any spoilers on this episode. Uh, if you want to hear spoilers, you can listen to my review that I posted earlier this week. It's got full spoilers. I, I pulled no punches. Um, but uh, in particular, our, our buddy Tony Snipes posted um, the picture of Paige Tico, who was one of the uh, bomber ship pilots. And that character and, and those bomber ships, I mean, that that whole scene, Eric, yeah. was like a scene out of a World War II war movie. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, what's, what's, the, what's that classic World War II movie? Um, uh, 12, uh, about, 12, 12 o'clock about, high? Yes, 12 o'clock high. So, I mean, that that sequence in the beginning on that, that Imperial or on that New Order Dreadnought yeah. where they're doing the bombing run and the dogfight and, you know, basically that whole sequence and, and Paige Tico, you know, trying to beat the clock to to complete the mission. I, I swear, it looked like it came right out of World War II movie. It, it really did. It had that feeling to it. And I, I'm I'm pretty sure that that was, that was intentional. Yeah, absolutely. And and the scenes on Canto Bite, the, the casino, you know, man, did, did you not really want to hear a, a Frank Sinatra soundtrack in the background on that? You mean there wasn't? <laughs> oh, so my imagination did it again? Did my imagination do that to me again? I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that... I'm I'm going to say, I'm going to say and it has nothing to do, I'm not going to spoil the plot to The Last Jedi at all. Uh, the only thing I am going to say um, about The Last Jedi, it has everything to do with the aesthetics. Um, a New Hope, because I, I, I can't keep saying the, oh, the original Star Wars. Um, Star Wars A New Hope, or Star Wars 1977, ha- had to be a diesel punk science fiction movie because it had to be on many, on, on two different levels. I could say many different levels, but I don't want to make a long story longer. It had to be a diesel punk movie because of everything that had been going on in the world of movie making at the time. And the way that George Lucas saved so much money is that he recycled so many things that they found. And and listen, and there's a a book out there, it's called Skywalking. It's about the making of the original Star Wars movie and all the stuff that George Lucas had to go through to make the Star Wars movie. It was diesel punk out of necessity, like I had already said. He was the anti-hero of his own story. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, is about The Last Jedi, it is it is visually informed by World War II movies. And that's not a mistake, because what Ryan Johnson was trying to do was to trigger in your mind, in your memory, um, World War II movies. That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to um, do, do kind of like, is, is, it a, is, is it a spoiler to say that there's a part of the movie that he wanted to make a Star Wars 
Run Silent, Run Deep, um, Das Boat version of Star Wars. Is that is that giving away anything? And uh, I don't I don't think so. Okay. And the thing is, is that it's visually informed to the World War II era because that's the because he was trying to get that vibe going. And there's a lot of things about what happens in Star Wars: The Last Jedi harkens back to movies about the Spanish Civil War, World War II, the 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 French Resistance and the Dutch Resistance and the Polish Resistance fighting against the Nazis. Um, and there's just so much going on there. And I I think that one of the reasons why so many people have been writing such negative comments about The Last Jedi is because they're cinematically illiterate. They don't really, because how can you understand a movie that pays homage to Casablanca if you've never seen Casablanca before? Exactly. Um, there, was a, there was a great movie um, by Woody Allen. Woody Allen did this movie called Play It Again, Sam. And it's about a guy, <laughs> a, new, a neurotic Jew in Manhattan or, or, or New York who self-identifies as a Humphrey Bogart fan and he wants to be Humphrey Bogart. And Humphrey Bogart comes to him to talk to him about what it is to be a man, what it is to fall in love, what it is to give up a woman that you love for a higher ideal. That mo- it, The movie is total nonsense and non sequiturs if you've never seen Casablanca or Key Largo to have or have not you cannot go and see this movie if you're not a fan of Humphrey Bogart's work and that's what one of the critics had said about Play It Again Sam. Um, There's a lot of things that happen in The Last Jedi that make absolute total perfect sense to a cinephile somebody who loves classic movies and I think and he made he literally made a classic World War II movie in the Star Wars universe with also some of the other religious overtones from the previous six films, or seven if you count um, Rogue One. Rogue One. Right. Yep. And, and and I said this earlier, there are three or four lines in The Last Jedi. I'm not spoiling anything, but those lines make Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, better movies. Mark Hamill, with a script writing, um, Mark Hamill is able to save those movies and make them much better movies than they were. Um, on their own. And I and the thing is that it's like if you're a classic movie fan and you're a Star Wars fan, you should really love The Last Jedi. Yeah, and and if you're a fan of the diesel aesthetic, um definitely you're going to love this movie. It's 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 just a visual treat to to see the really it's almost not just a love letter to World War II movies, Eric. It is a love letter to George Lucas's saga, yeah. which was inspired and informed by, you know, the the movie serials of the 30s and 40s, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, and all of it starts to tie together. And you know, truthfully, I was just thinking about this as we're we're talking. If you took the uh the the Star Wars saga yeah. and and you go from from Phantom Menace through Last Jedi, you actually almost can see the the style and aesthetic and political progression of the Diesel era, starting with the Art Deco jazz movement in Phantom Menace, because that's all Art Deco, right? And and it's just beautiful. Through you know the World War II fight against Nazi fascism yeah. in the Last Jedi. I'm going to say something um, about George Lucas, and it's going to sound like I'm a fanboy apologist, and I'm going to say that George Lucas can do no wrong, and it's the farthest thing from the truth. One weekend, when you have the house alone, there's a handful of movies that I want you to watch, and I want you to watch them in chronological order, if you can. THX 1138, American Graffiti, the original Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Raiders of the Lost 
Stark. I want you to watch those five movies, one right after the other, and look at what George Lucas was trying to say. And George Lucas has something to say with all of those movies, um, one right after the other. He actually, and George, I, I think that people do not realize that George Lucas was probably one of the most profound filmmakers of our lifetime until his soul was bought by Kenner Toys. <laughs> you know? It, it, the merchandising of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back really sort of killed the, the vision quest that he was on. And it and when he parted company with Gary Kurtz, that's when you can see that he really went off the deep end. Um, and you can sort of see how um, George Lucas lost his vision after that. But watch those five movies and see what he's trying to tell you. The message that he's trying to tell you is a, is a very anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment, get back to... Um, I, it's almost like a it's almost like a call to try and go back and reclaim a part of ourselves that we've lost um, with the commercialization and the industrialization that occurred during the 1960s. And, and I think that you'll you'll have a different view of George Lucas after you watch those. Just watch those five movies and, and kind of like and and and, and, and do so and, and stay inside your own head for a little while and see see what happens and get back to me. That, that's good advice. I am a Lucasian apologist. So, uh, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. So, hey, guys, I got uh, one more thing from the Diesel Punk tip line. Our buddy Tom Wilson sent me a link and posted it on the Diesel Punk podcast Facebook page, a link to the television series Damnation on USA Network. And uh, I, according to Tome, it's uh, produced uh, in conjunction with Netflix. It's a partnership. And it's uh, an epic saga about the secret history of the 1930s American heartland, centering on the mythic conflict and bloody struggle between big money and the downtrodden. Larry, this sounds like a television show right up your alley. Sure sounds like it, man. Mm-hmm. Sure does. And um, so uh, it, it's been uh, described as, um, oh, wait, wait, I just lost this quote. Uh, um, it, it was made by the same people who did the uh, television show The O.C. And um, one reviewer called it, <laughs> yeah, it's the battle between rich and poor um, and uh, two brothers on opposing sides. And uh, it's uh, from the executive producer of Game of Thrones. And it's on USA. You can catch it, I believe, on Netflix and Hulu. Uh, looks fantastic. And Tom Wilson gave it his uh, two thumbs up and uh, thought it was something we should know about. So. So, uh, passing that along to our audience. John, I'm sending you something right now that you have to read. You have to read this out loud. Okay. I promised our listener, a listener, that uh, that you would read this before the end of the show. And I got a feeling that we're winding up. Yeah, we are. So go ahead. <laughs> so you have to read this. All right. And Larry and Daisy, you ha- you have to um you have to listen before you go. You you have to listen to what John's about to read. All right. I haven't gotten it yet, Eric. I just sent it to you via uh, the Facebook. Oh wait, messages. here it is. Here it is. All right. So wow, this is lengthy. It's a perfect oh, way. Okay. To- Okay, so this is an email from a fan. Yes. From a listener. All right, excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, and this is from Michael A. Sigler. So he he says, Hey, all, I just wanted to drop a line and say that everyone involved with the Fedora Chronicles and the Diesel Punk podcast are great and honestly, insanely inspirational. Everyone involved from Johnny and Eric to Daisy and Larry are just a wealth of information. I've been researching Diesel Punk for a handful of months now, though have been in the steampunk community on and off for 
over a decade. After the wife and I moved from Chicago to Memphis this past summer, and I have nothing to do, I started kicking around some ideas for a new pulp series to write and thought about looking into diesel punk for inspiration. Parentheses. Side note, I've always loved the pulps and have a collection of over 300 pulp era books and magazines and, ha and have had conversations at length with Ron Fortier of Airship 27 and Tommy Hancock of Pro Se Productions at Windy City Pulp and Paper Convention. By the way, Pro Se Productions is my publisher of Tales from the Flipside. Uh, it's a wonder it took me so long to get into diesel punk. Unparentheses. One of the first things to come up on both Google and Facebook searches were the diesel punk podcast. Yay! Funny enough, my blanket Woo! search for diesel punk led me to the podcast while my search for diesel punk vehicle inspirations led me to the Portsmouth Aeroship Building Company, which in turn led me to the podcast. Portsmouth Aeroship Building Company, for those of you uh, listening, is our friend Tony Snipes, who was on the show uh, about a month or so ago. Uh, Michael continues, I can say with all honesty that this podcast quickly made its way to the top of my weekly rotation, and I've gone back and listened to, my, to almost all of the old episodes of the Fedora Chronicles and the Diesel Punk Podcast and the Tales from the Flipside show as well. I can't tell you enough how much a wealth of knowledge you all are and really just how accessible you make the whole of diesel punk to the new and uninitiated. I've outlined five retro future novellas while your podcast blasts in my office and have even, parentheses, slowly, unparentheses, accumulated more 30s and 40s clothes that I, that I have started to push my Victorian stuff deeper and deeper into the closet. I just thought I'd remind you all of your insane value to this amazing little niche of retro punk subgenres. Keep doing what you're doing and hope to cross paths one day. Your rabid fan, Michael A. Sigler. Well, thank you, Michael. That is an awesome letter. And Daisy, he is in Memphis. Oh, boy. Well, gee, I wonder if, if, if our buddy is going to come see you and me and all our pals in West Memphis in a couple weeks. Yeah. So um, what, what Daisy's referring to is ShadowCon in uh, West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, Daisy and I are going to be performing along with Ginger O'Snap and uh, Shucks Rodriguez Friday night, uh, January the 5th at 11 p.m., we will be doing um, our cabaret show. Uh, Daisy does some awesome music, ukulele, vocals, homage to Betty Boop. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. I'll be doing Big Daddy Cool's Swingin' Magic, and uh, it's going to be a fun time. But that whole weekend, there are panels, and, and the very first panel, Eric, you will appreciate this, the very first panel of the con at 4 p.m. on five uh, on the 5th, 4 p.m. on January 5th, is Steampunk or Diesel Punk. And it's a panel with me and Tommy Hancock of Pro Save Productions. And um, Daisy, you'll definitely want to come sit in on that and uh, oh, yeah. drag, some, drag some of our, uh, our friendlies along. But Michael, that would be a great chance for you to come out and meet Daisy and myself. And I will be broadcasting the podcast uh, sometime uh, on Saturday. Uh, Daisy and and I will we'll jump on the mic and uh, we'll uh, do an episode live from the floor there at ShadowCon and you can come as a rabid fan meet us talk to us and you know what anyone who comes by when we're broadcasting what happens Daisy? Oh uh, you just might get yourself recorded for all posterity on the Diesel Punk podcast and isn't that how a certain young co-host female co-host actually started off on this program? Yep yep back in uh, 2014 
2014 at River City Comic Con in Little Rock. Yeah. And Diesel Punk happened to cross paths with you and with a little um, friendly encouragement from her buddy Jeff. <laughs> More like, yeah, so, you're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, so so Daisy started as, as you know, just someone walking by pretty much. Uh and, and we pulled her onto the show. She was great. And the rest is history. And uh, Michael, you got to come out and see us. We got to have you on the program live. That's that's my challenge to Michael. And, and what a great letter. Thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Eric. Hey, I made a promise. I said that he uh, uh, we're going to do something about his letter. And um, I actually printed it off. I folded it up and I put it in my wallet. And um, every time I, 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 I'm feeling a little down on myself at the, uh, at the second job, I... I I, I I take it out and I read it and um, it 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 gives me it, it gives me a moment to say pick yourself up get moving again because um y- you know it's uh it's there's a reason why I'm doing this and it's not just for myself it's for it's for people like him it's for people yeah. like it's all of you guys it's it's absolutely uh, and 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 we love what we do we really do so and I and, and the thing is and, is and that that letter is an inspiration yeah we we need to hear more of that yeah because when we're doing when you're doing a podcast when you're doing YouTube videos when you're even for that matter, my live performances. Yeah, live, I have the instant feedback from the audience through their applause and their laughter. But, you know, after after they're all gone and the theater's dark and it's just me alone with my thoughts, you know, you start wonder, you start wonder, did, did I have an impact on anyone? Yeah. And and especially with podcasting, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of in a bubble. We, we don't get the feedback from the audience in the same way that, that we would always like. Yeah, and sometimes we wonder. And a balloon up to the ether. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you wonder, you know, is anybody care about this? Is anybody listening? And and to get a letter like that, Michael, is really super encouraging. And uh, I, I, I appreciate it greatly, more than you can imagine. And it just tells me that, yes, uh, what we're doing is worthwhile. So thank you. So I think that this is the perfect time to end the show um, like we always do and uh, with uh, updates on what everybody is up to. Well, unless there's something else. I just shared. uh, Yeah, I just shared uh, uh, ShadowCon, West Memphis, Arkansas. Daisy and I will be there January 5th and 6th. Uh, so come out and uh, you can meet Tommy Hancock. He'll be there. Aubrey Stevens, some other pulp writers will be there. Uh, it'll be a great fun time. Cons are always great. And then uh, the middle of February, I think it's February 15th, 16th. I could be wrong on the dates. I'll have to look it up. Uh, I'll be at Anacrocon. Finally, finally, <laughs> Diesel Punk is coming to Anacrocon. This has been a con that we've been trying to get a presence at for six years. And finally, they've, they've called us and... Uh, I'll be there. And uh, anyone else in the listening area, Eric, Daisy, if you guys want to come to Atlanta, Larry, if you can make it. Unfortunately, there's uh, no compensation, just the love of doing this. But um, Anacrocon, you know, is one of the uh, longer standing uh, retro punk conventions in in the United States right now. So um, come join us. I'll be there. Uh, performing, paneling, and uh, doing my thing, broadcasting. What about you, Daisy? Well, the big thing coming up for uh, for me would be ShadowCon. I uh, don't have any lands for next year ahead of that. I mean, of course, you know, MidSouthCon in March, that's that's my big deal. But uh, ShadowCon, Johnny, you, have you been to ShadowCon before? Even as a guest? I, even I never have. I never have. But I've heard really good things that it's... Um, 
one of those uh, great community cons mm-hmm. where it feels like a family reunion every year. ShadowCon uh, is the family reunion for the uh, the Mid South geek community. I'm going to say that now. It's um, it's not flashy, but it is definitely home, and I love it, and I look forward to it every year because you don't feel like you're under a lot of you know you don't feel rushed, you don't feel like you're under a lot of pressure. You're just there for a good time, and you get to see people that you know those people who are special in your life, but you only seem to get to see them at conventions. You'll get to see them all at ShadowCon and I absolutely cannot wait to see all my buddies. And it's going to be a real wing ding. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Eric, uh, what's new on the horizon for you? Uh, well, what I would like to ask everybody, uh, please send me your nominations for the Fedora Chronicles Citizen of the Year Award. This award goes to the greatest member of our community who has done the most to support Fedora wearing hashtag uh, slash dieselpunk community. Uh, the winner will be a announced during our last podcast of 2017. And where should they send those nominations? Well, I'm glad you asked, John. Info at thefedorachronicles.com or via Twitter at Fedora Chronicle. Outstanding. Outstanding. The the <clears throat> Fedora Chronicles Person of the Year. Yes. Outstanding. Can't wait to see who the fans nominate and ultimately choose. That's exciting. Exciting stuff. Well, it is time for us to sign out and uh, I'm going to leave us a little bit differently tonight, Eric. Uh, Larry had to leave us uh, early, uh, so uh, we're, we're, we're saying goodnight on his behalf. But I want to leave this podcast with a quote from Star Wars The Last Jedi. And I think this quote from the character Rose Tico summarizes the philosophy that we have as diesel punks in a, in a great, great way. And that is when she said, that's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate, but saving what we love. And with that, we say goodnight from the Diesel Punk Podcast and the Fedora Chronicles. Till the next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. This has been the Fedora Chronicles radio show and a co-production of the Diesel Punk podcast. You can find out more about us by going to our websites, thefedorachronicles.com and dieselpunks.com. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can find these links on our homepages. Be sure to visit our sponsors, Chester Cordite, Landron Artifacts, and the Trinity Whip Company. Also, check out the friends of our show, Penman Hats, and Reconstructing History. Once again, this is Eric Render King Fisk signing off, and keep your chins up and your fedoras on.